Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Lawyers Walk Into a Bar. Today we'll be presenting an April 2021 interview with Jerry Goldfeder, special counsel at Strook and one of the pioneering election lawyers in New York State. He's had a long career with local, state, and federal elections. Let's see what we can learn. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Lee Berkstein. I'm Cooper Norton. And we are really thrilled to have Jerry Goldfeder, special counsel at Strook, with us here today. This is actually our first episode since the pandemic hit about a year ago. I don't know why we stopped doing these during the pandemic. It seemed kind of like the best time to record podcasts, but we just stopped. So we are thrilled to have Jerry here today. Jerry, his practice is concentrated on election law. He's been uh, practicing election law for 40 years, has had a variety of high-profile candidates and elected officials as clients, including mayors, governors, and uh, even the president of the United States. So, Jerry, thanks for joining us here today. My pleasure. Good to be with you. Jerry, I think for people who follow the BFK social media, they, they may recognize you because we did a, a webinar with you a few days before the election, which yes. was Time, the last time we connected, I, we, we should go back and I think I think some of the some of the predictions were were eerily accurate. I think we all there's it was impossible to to totally predict it, but it's funny that that was it feels like that was about five years ago that we chatted. It but does it does feel that way, yeah. A couple months ago, yeah. Some of it was very hard to predict. I didn't think that um, some of those folks would go to the lengths that they actually did. Yeah, I, I was I was panic texting Jerry late at night the first couple of nights and he was trying to talk me off the ledge a little bit, which he did. That and yeah. that well, and here, some wisdom. Here we are. So here we are. <laughs> so so almost a hundred days into the Biden presidency, where it it feels so different. It feels so much more relaxed. It feels so much more hopeful than it did for a long time. And it has for a long time. I would I would certainly concur. Jerry, why don't you, we generally ask uh, our guests to start off by just sort of giving a little background on where they grew up, where they're from, you know, general, general, what, what childhood was like and, and all that. Well, I don't know about my childhood, but I, so I grew up in uh, Brooklyn, New York. You might not be able to tell that from my accent, but I spent my formative years there, went to public school and became a public school teacher. I taught fifth grade basically to get out of the Vietnam War, that demonstrates uh, my age. And once I got a, an excellent uh, draft uh, lottery number, I uh, went to graduate school and got a degree in political science. And then I decided I should go to law school. So I did that. But growing up in a working class Jewish neighborhood in Brooklyn gave me a real sense of justice and the lack of it in the world. I went to a, an integrated high school in Brooklyn, Wingate High School, where the population was very mixed between white Jewish kids and African-Americans. There were some Italian kids as well. And even though we were in the same class, the same classes for some of our subjects, uh, for the most part, it was segregated in the sense that the academic classes were populated by white kids and the less academic classes were populated by black kids. And we were all very aware of this. And in, uh, as I said, there were very, there were a number of classes where there was a real mix. And that was really great. As a matter of fact, one of my very first demonstrations as a kid 
was during what used to be called Brooklyn Day. Brooklyn Day was a holiday where there was no school. And uh, the reason for it is that Brooklyn had more churches than any other borough. And so we celebrated the proliferation of churches in Brooklyn by having no school. It, it was transformed over the years into Brooklyn Queens Day. But as far as I'm concerned, it was called Brooklyn Day and it will always be called Brooklyn Day. And it, it, it was in June. And even though we had no class, we had no classes that day, a whole bunch of us picketed our high school, it was Wingate High School. And the purpose was to make certain that it was, that it continued to be more or less integrated because there was a proposal to segregate the school by busing African-American kids out of the area into other schools. And we were opposed to that. We wanted it to remain integrated. So that was pretty formative in my life. And those kinds of issues have stayed with me throughout my professional career and throughout my personal life. I went to law school ultimately because I thought I could make a difference as a lawyer. Even though I love teaching and I was going to teach political science after getting a degree at UCLA, I thought that teaching was great, but it wasn't enough. In fact, many, I still how teach. Many years, how many years did you did you teach fifth grade? Two. And where where were you a teacher? In Bedford-Stuyvesant in New York, which is an entirely African-American community at that time. And I actually really loved it, but I wanted to get a, an advanced degree in, in political science. And then I taught that. But then I, I decided to, be, to really be effective, I would be a lawyer. And I went to uh, law school. And when I decided to go to law school, I went to a brand new law school. It was in the middle of August. School was starting in about two weeks. And I made one of these last minute decisions. And I went to the the dean of the new law school, Cardozo School of Law, uh, with Yeshiva University. I knew they had a great board of directors, and I thought it would be a great school to go to. And I said, I'd like to go to your law school. And the dean looked at me like, you're just coming here two weeks before school starts, and you want to go to law school? And I, he said, well, what are your numbers? So I told him what my LSAT was because I took it on a whim like five years before that. And those days, any, those scores lasted for five years. They were good for five years. So I told him what my numbers were. And he said, okay, fine, you're admitted. I said, well, that was pretty easy. I said, in that case, I want you to give me a full scholarship. And he started laughing and he said, oh, you're going to be a great lawyer. And I said, well, never mind my going to be a great lawyer. I still want a full scholarship. And persuasive person that I am, I got it. And so I went to law school and I, I had no lawyers in my family. I was probably the first person, I think I was the first person to graduate college in my family, let alone graduate school and, and law school. So I really had no expectation of how, what the curriculum was and what I'd have to learn and so on and so forth. But I went through law school, I was on the law review. I met my wife there. Uh, we sat next to each other in constitutional law. I got an A. You got an A minus. Don't tell anybody. And here I am 40 years later. So that's that's my background. And what fueled the work that I do is this sense of the importance of striving for justice. And it's not just a, you know, a slogan for me because I grew up with it in a working class area 
and in in school when I was a kid. When when you started out in law school, did you think that you know potentially being in the world of elections and politics was in your future, or did you have other plans? Or in law school, did you ever think about other other potential legal career paths? I had no idea. Like so many students, I I really had no idea. I was always interested in politics, but there was no such thing as election law in those days. Nobody taught it. Uh, when I started teaching it teaching election law at Fordham Law School. I think I was the first person to teach election law in, in a law school. I guess you um, went up to the dean and said, I want to teach election law. And the dean said, what, election law? And he said, election law. And he said, okay. <laughs> it was something like that. It, it was something like that. But I was always interested in politics. And as a matter of fact, when I was in college, apropos to your, your previous comment here, I was at this... Um, at the University of Maryland, there was an organization called the National Student Association, and went down there to for you know for a conference, a two-week conference. This was in 1967, and I said to a group of people I was with, I said, "Okay, we need to go over to the White House to picket it because the war was going on, the Vietnam War was going on." And so we went over to the White House to picket it, and then we were there, and I said to this group, "I said we need to go to Bobby Kennedy's office." and tell him to run for president. So that's exactly what we did. There was about a dozen of us. And in those days, you could just walk right into the Senate office building. And we did that. I beg your pardon? You can now also. Yeah, well, not really. And we went into Bobby Kennedy's office. And I said, we are students from New York, and we would like to see the senator. And she said, do you have an appointment? So I said, well, no. But we are students from New York and we'd like to see the senator. She says, well, I'm really sorry. You can't come in. You don't have an appointment. I said, no, no, you don't understand. We're students from New York and we'd like to see the senator. This is true. And this is the way I've always been. And this is the way I still am. And so needless to say, I don't want to say I wore her down, but she said, just a moment. And we were then ushered in to see Bobby Kennedy. And I said to him, Senator, you need to run for president. And he said, uh, I'm support, I, uh, I support the president. I support uh, President Johnson. This was in the summer of 67 before, obviously, he decided to actually oppose Lyndon Johnson in the primaries. And unfortunately, he was assassinated. Otherwise, he might have been the nominee and the whole world would have been very different. But it is what it, what it is. So I've always been interested in politics, which is what got me involved in election law. Because in 1981, there was a mayoral campaign in New York City, and I was involved in a club, the Village Independent Democrats. And the Village Independent Democrats was a very important reform club that Ed Koch came out of. And I and many people in this club, even though Koch came out of the club and he was the mayor, we were supporting somebody else. You notice a contrarian kind of theme here. Picking up on that. Yeah. So we were supporting an assembly assemblyman named Frank Barbaro from Brooklyn for mayor. And we wanted Frank Barbaro to be able to, in order to win, we wanted to get any other candidate off the ballot. Well, I didn't know that you could do that. I didn't even know how you got on the ballot. I hadn't the slightest idea. So I got roped into this situation where we were at the Board of Elections. And we were trying to throw off a third candidate. So it would be a direct 
competition between this guy, Frank Barbro and Ed Koch. And what we did was, and what I learned was I was, I was like the fourth seat on this legal uh, proceeding. I really, I had no idea how this worked. I didn't know you needed signatures to get on the ballot. And I didn't know that you could look at those signatures of an opposing candidate and say, well, these are not legible. These are not valid signatures. The people who signed it were not registered voters or living in New York City or enrolled Democrats because it was a Democratic primary. So we tried to knock this candidate off the ballot and we didn't succeed. But the, and Koch went on to win very comfortably in any event. And even if it was a one-on-one primary election, he probably would have slaughtered our candidate. But the experience was such that I learned that there was such a thing as the law relating to elections, how to get on the ballot, how to regulate elections and so on. And little by little, I taught myself how this works by being involved in other people, by being involved in in campaigns. And there were very few people involved in this kind of election law. You could count them on one hand. In fact, the two premier election lawyers, quote unquote, at the time were actually tax lawyers. But because tax law and election law are very similar, you'd never know that because they're very detailed oriented. And so they really mentored, they mentored me and they mentored other people as well. And I learned, as I say, I taught myself and I learned from them and by watching how to be an election lawyer. And here I am today. Was this though, what what did you do right out of law school? Like what was the, like, was it a direct path to teaching yourself like right out of law school? Were you teaching yourself how to be an election lawyer? Were there any other jobs between that? So my first job was at the Corporation Council. I worked in the general litigation division of the Corporation Council and I've been, and I was there for several weeks and I got a call from a judge of the appellate division of first department and said, I thought I was going to retire, but I'm not going to retire. I want you to come in and interview with me and be my law secretary. And the way it works in the appellate division is that each judge has a law secretary and then there's a a pool of uh, law clerks as well. So I went in and after seven weeks at the Corporation Counsel's office, I went to work for Justice Samuel J. Silverman, who was a brilliant judge at the appellate division first department. And I worked for him. I did that for two years. And then I went to a big firm. And in my spare time, I was involved in campaigns. But I I did what any uh, young associate does in a big firm, which is research on a variety of issues. And uh, one of the issues was actually landlord-tenant law, which Hmm. I also learned and got involved in, but it was the general commercial litigation. There was some surrogate court litigation where I did some research and and helped the more senior attorneys. Then I went to a smaller firm, about 35 people, and I did the same kind of thing. And I really learned how to be a lawyer at these firms. And then in 1980, late 1983, I said, you know what? I need a break from this. I'm going to, uh, I was asked to run a presidential campaign in New York that was going to occur the next year, but we were already starting up. Alan Cranston, who was the senator from California, was running for president of the United States. So I managed his campaign in New York. You remember 
President Cranston, don't you? He uh, didn't quite make it. And then I became the deputy campaign manager in New York for Walter Mondale, who just recently died. And that was a great experience. I enjoyed that uh, very much. And I was able to use my skills as a lawyer because there were some campaign finance issues, but also my skills relating to uh, political organizing and working with uh, people to secure the vote and win win the, uh, the primary election. And he actually, when he first announced to uh, run for president, he was considered a shoo-in. He had been vice president. He had a long career, very smart, very experienced and so on. But uh, along the way, two particular people decided to run against him, Reverend Jesse Jackson and then Senator uh, Gary Hart. And so it was, it became a real contest. And New York, the New York presidential primary became very pivotal. And Mario Cuomo, then the governor, was supporting Mondale. And um, we were able to win that primary. And then he had sure sailing for the rest of the primary season. And then he went on to, you know, win the presidency. Oh, no. He lost 49 states, actually. But it was a great experience. How did you get that first opportunity? I know you didn't walk in the door to the presidential campaign and say, I want to be the, the campaign manager. How did you go from you know, big firm, small firm, medium firm to, you know, running a presidential campaign? Well, I was on Fire Island and... Did not expect the story to begin that way, but keep going. I was on Fire Island in the village of uh, Fair Harbor. And the then assemblyman, Jerry Nadler, was visiting some friends, including somebody who went on to be a judge who had a house in Fair Harbor. I rented a house in Kismet, so I walked over there close by, and we were talking politics, et cetera. It was the only time I ever seen Jerry Nadler without a shirt and tie. Jerry Nadler always wears a white shirt and tie, always. This time he, we were on the beach and he was not wearing a shirt and tie. He was just wearing a polo shirt like the rest of us. And we were talking politics and so on. And he was supporting Alan Cranston for president. This was in the summer of 1983. So he said, well, how would you like to run the campaign here in New York City? So I said, sure. That's how it happened. I know you're shaking your head. Sometimes it's all serendipitous. But so for the young people who are listening, the lesson here is the same lesson. I've had the opportunity to speak to graduates, uh, graduation at Fordham Law School several times. And there's one lesson that I always try to convey, and some people pay attention to it, some people don't, which is don't make up your mind in the beginning of your career about the way you are going to practice law. Be open. Yeah. Because there are paths there that you can't even imagine. So when you asked me before, did I think about what I would be doing when I was in law school? Did I think about this? It was the furthest thing from my mind. I mean, I knew I was interested in politics. I didn't know there was such a thing as an election law. And I had no idea what I was going to do. I know I wanted to make a difference. But beyond that, I didn't know. And I was open. And it's hard to be open to other people's suggestions and to opportunities that don't feel exactly right on the right path and so on. But I, but I was. And I did it. And I, I can't say that I regret any of those decisions whatsoever. And I try to instill that in my students. To, to be open, to let life unfold 
in ways that you don't expect. It's the same thing as, you know, in your personal life. You just never know who you're going to meet and fall in love with and whatnot. Uh, so the same is true in your professional life. And anybody who has a path, this is what I'm going to do from now to the next five years, to the next 10 years and so on, they're missing an opportunity to let themselves grow in ways that they might not expect. Yeah. I thought you were going to say rent a house in Fire Island as the, as the advice. You know, I don't know how Fire Island is these days. I haven't been there in a while. I, and, and, you know, I just want to piggyback on that point because I think that that's great advice. And then one other thing that I've heard in our conversation so far is, you know, making your own opportunities. People are so reliant on email and waiting for something to happen or, you know, sending a resume through a portal. That doesn't work anymore. You were using, you know, boots in the ground techniques to kind of get what you wanted, both in law school, to get somebody to run for, to consider running for president. I think those, that type of mindset still works. Just people aren't used to it. They aren't used to getting a phone call from somebody who's interested in talking to them or them showing up at their office. You know, everyone's so used to just hiding behind LinkedIn or email. So I think that's a really valuable thread that I picked up and, and how you- Yeah, and I couldn't agree with you more about that. You shouldn't just wait around. You shouldn't be passive and you shouldn't necessarily follow the tried and true ways of getting what you want. You really need to be assertive without being obnoxious. You need to be assertive in different ways, in unexpected ways. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it's a positive as far as I'm concerned. Sure. Jerry, it sounds like you've been adjacent to or in, in politics for basically your entire career. Did you ever have a moment where you thought you would be the candidate or you would run for office? Well, I have. And, and I've won and I've lost. When I was in 1984, I ran for the a Democratic Party position, and there was a hot primary, and I won with 66.3% of the vote. That's not exactly true, but it's six, but it was 66-something percent of the vote. And then I tried to run for the city council, and there were eight of us. It was a an open seat, and the winner got about 102% of the vote. It wasn't me. I ran against, as I say, seven other people, Scott Stringer, who uh, is now running for mayor. He was also an also-ran candidate in that race. Ronnie Eldridge, who was ultimately elected, was very popular, very experienced, and she ultimately won. So I've had experience winning and losing, and I think it has made me a better lawyer because representing candidates, because I have a certain feeling of empathy for candidates. It's not easy being a candidate. It's not easy stepping up to the plate and wanting to serve. It's not easy going through a campaign. And one of the questions that I always ask candidates when they come to my office, and frankly, if a candidate wants to run and they call me, I see them all, unless I actually have somebody in that race already. I see them all or I talk to them because First of all, I'm interested in meeting as many people as I can. And even if I don't take them on as a candidate or they don't take me on as a lawyer, I like to establish a relationship with people who are running for office. And I think that I have something valuable to convey to them. But one of the questions I always ask them is, are you prepared psychologically to lose? Usually the answer I get is, oh, I'm going to win. Oh, yeah, that's true. But do the math most people lose. 
So my question, the reason I ask this question is because people put their heart and soul into running for office. And when you do that, your entire identity with winning or losing, and that's not a great thing. But as a, the real reason I ask them this question is because I want them to, to try to get some distance from their running, even though they're totally involved, so that they could make good decisions about their campaign. If somebody is running for office and they must win from a, an emotional point of view, they must win, they're liable to say or do things that they would regret. And so you can't say to somebody, oh, you need some distance from your race to make sure that you don't do something that, or say something that you will, you will regret. You can't say that to somebody. You need to draw them out in a way that enables them to appreciate that. So that's the reason why I ask a potential candidate if they, if they must win, if they're psychologically prepared to lose. And by the way, that's a lesson for any kind of client because uh, clients who, if it's just a regular commercial litigation, clients who will fight like hell because of the principle of the thing, they can't see that sometimes it makes sense to settle. And so you really have to work with clients sometimes in order to get them to a position where they have some distance from the fight that they're involved in, whether it's a campaign or commercial litigation or whatnot. So all lawyers need to have a sensitivity toward what a client, whether it's a candidate or or a normal client, what they're going through in terms of how to resolve the issues that they come to you to help them with. I've definitely said and immediately regretted it. You're too emotionally invested in this to a to a litigation client. And you're right. Uh, it's, it's not a good approach, although it's often the truth. And I was going to ask whether there are parallels between the outset of, of a campaign and a piece of commercial litigation, because I, I, and I guess you were talking through some of those parallels uh, just now, but it's, they seem... 20 minutes of conversation, they seem somewhat similar. There seem to be a lot of parallels in how they might be approached. Did you learn some lessons from organizing campaigns and running campaigns and, and actually you know, running for office that applied to, to litigation moving forward? Or in- Well, yes, and it's just what I say about people investing themselves to such, an, to such a degree that now I'm talking about a commercial litigation. There's sometimes people are so invested in winning that they don't realize that there's something very beneficial about settling a a case and putting it them putting it behind them. And uh, I mean, I've been involved in cases personally as well, and it's 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 hard to do that. But as an attorney advising, as a counselor at law, it's important to advise your clients about you know. Uh, these are the chances we have to win. These are the chances we have to lose. And it's very hard to give percentages to that. And clients usually want to know that. But you really need to give them some distance from the actual fight in order for them to make rational decisions about how to proceed with the litigation and how to proceed with their life. It's very difficult in matrimonial litigation, which I stay away from. I, I, I've not done that. But I have represented 
siblings who are fighting other siblings over businesses, property, businesses, and so on. And it becomes very difficult for people who are fighting their their siblings to extricate themselves from the fight in order to deal with the issues uh, with some distance and in a rational way. The same is true in campaigns when candidates are so invested in, in winning or losing that it's difficult for them to make rational decisions. And you can, as a lawyer, you can only do so much. Lots of times I'll give people advice and they'll ignore it. That's true in the commercial litigation sphere. That's true in landlord-tenant work. That's true in election law. That's true of everything, all kinds of cases that we face as attorneys. But you can only do your best in trying to uh, get into the skin of, of your client in order to help them resolve their litigation or fight their litigation and uh, move on. Jerry, I'm, I'm curious about what the process is like for you when you're, I mean, you mentioned one of the questions that you ask candidates when they when they come into your office, but how how does that differ, you know, picking for the most part, I mean, when, when Lee and I are, are interviewing potential candidates, I mean, there's, there's certain questions that we're asking and whether they can pay and, you know, certain whether, whether the case seems like something that we're interested in taking on. How is that uh, similar or different when you're, when you're sort of sitting across the table from someone deciding whether or not this is someone that you're interested in working with for the next, I don't know, six months, nine months, years? Well, that's a, that's a good question. So I've taken on clients who I know are going to win. I've taken on clients who I know they're going to lose. I've taken on clients who've raised a lot of money and people who have had a hard time raising money. It would be easy just to take on, especially at this point in my career, I have some ability to pick and choose. But I think I've always had this propensity to to want to work with people who I can relate to in some way, whether they're going to win or not. Obviously, I want my clients to win. But what I really want is for them to experience the campaign in a way that they don't have any regrets or a minimal amount of regret and that they do the best they can. And if they win, great. And if they don't, they at least feel that they did the best they could and they did it well. And as luck would have it, they just didn't prevail. I generally am very attracted to candidates who are insurgents, although I've represented many incumbents, some of the highest profile uh, people in the city and state of New York, and even, as you mentioned, uh, presidential candidates and United States senators, Congress people. But I'm still attracted to insurgents because, probably because of the way I was brought up. And even when these insurgents really don't have a real shot, if they're serious people and they have a real sense of purpose and they seem like good people, I'm attracted to that. I've, I'm not representing anybody who's running for mayor right now because I, I made a choice to stay out of it this time. I've represented a lot of candidates for mayor. And I've had one candidate come to me who I thought he would be he or she, would be a terrific mayor. And I just knew that they really didn't have a shot. So I didn't take it. I didn't take uh, the person on as a candidate. 
but I sent them some money and I recommended somebody else to uh, represent that person. And in a way, it's kind of a shame that a person who I think is really good has such a hard time in this political uh, world, but that's, but that's life. So I, I make decisions on a, with a, you know, on a variety of, of levels when I take on clients. It's the insurgents who I, who sure. I love the best. How have those conversations changed? You've been doing a version of this since the since the eighties. Do you do you feel like those conversations are different or different? You're making different calculations now based on the state of politics and looking for different things in in candidates than you than you were when you first started. Well, there's always a difference between when you're building your career than when you are established. Sure. And there's always a difference between when you are younger than when you are somewhat older. Because you look at the world differently, you look at yourself differently, and the choices that you're able to make are obviously different. I'm, I'm much more centered now than I was. I think I'm mature, more mature, although who knows if that's really true. And I just have a better sense of the political world and what I'm looking to do and how I'm looking to help people than I did when I was younger and hungrier and I guess maybe more willing to take on clients who I would not take on today. I think I'm a little more discriminating today than I was 20 years ago. Are there, are there any particular campaigns that you've worked on that are, are, are biggest, biggest successes or disappointments or, or surprises or, or ones that really stand out to you? Yes. Can you, can you share a few of those? There are campaigns that I've been involved in when I've represented a candidate who is supposed to win, mm-hmm. and then they don't, which are heartbreaking. I mean, I represented Hillary. I represented Mark Green when he ran for mayor. I represented Chris Quinn when she ran for mayor. Didn't turn out the way they had hoped. Didn't turn out the way I had hoped. And, you know, as a lawyer, I become invested in my candidate. Sure. There are some examples where I don't, but I would say 95% I'm invested in my candidate and I really want, and I believe in them and I want what's best for them and what I believe is best for the city or the country. And so those are very hard. Those are very hard. The same is true with Billy Thompson. He came very, very close and uh, he also would have been a terrific mayor. That's one of the reasons why I decided not to represent anybody this time around. I have a little distance. I mean, I'm representing a lot of candidates for district attorney and borough president and city council and so on. I'm, I represent the mayor of state and I represent a number of counties. I've been, I'm very involved in the election season. I've just um, just made some choices here that give me a little more freedom to comment on the on the races and with less wear and tear. And I'm able to do that now just because of where I am in my career. Has the, has the actual practice like what you're doing on on day to day change significantly, or is it still similar issues that you're that you're usually dealing with? I mean, I know every campaign is going to be a little different, but are are kind of the 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 big issues that you're encountering in in New York election law similar or or quite different than they were 10, 20, 30 years ago? I think there's um, well, the ballot access issues are pretty much the same, mm-hmm. but the campaign finance and ethics issues have gotten much more nuanced, much more important, and needing my attention a lot more than they used to. 
I also represent a lot of uh, candidates and elected officials who have crossed the line in one way or another. And there are district attorney investigations, attorney general investigations, the, the feds get involved, and we represent a number of people in those situations as well. And that's something that I've been doing for the last 10 or 10 or 15 years, whereas I didn't do that in the beginning of my career. So uh, you wrote a book and I'm curious, you're going to show it? That's it. I was talking about the other one. I'm curious, you know, there are a lot of- You notice, do you notice uh, if you watch MSNBC or CNN that when commentators come on who have written books, they have their book right behind them? How obnoxious is that? That's why they're coming on. I guess. There are plenty of attorneys, I think, who are uh, wannabe or aspiring writers, authors. I'm kind of curious about how you approach that process, uh, how you were able to balance the process with, with practicing to just give some insight into to how that worked. I think, I think writing is really important for a lawyer. Obviously, if you write briefs, your writing style is really critical. You want to convey your argument. But also, I do a lot of writing. I write for the New York Law Journal. I've written a, the treatise on election law, and I, do, I write a lot of articles for the popular media. And it helps me think through a variety of issues. It's not always about a particular case. It's about a subject matter. So, for example, you know, I might write about I had a whole series in the New York Law Journal last year about the processes. I wasn't advocating for impeachment. I wasn't opposing it. I was raising the issues so that in this case, lawyers could have a better understanding of the legal issues involved. I just did a podcast on the recall in California. The governor of the biggest state is being recalled and there's going to be a special election. 19 states have the recall. New York does not. So I get involved in a, a variety of, of writing projects that keep my juices flowing and I think help me understand the political world. But also it's part of, part of what I do as a, as a quote unquote educator. Not only do I teach at the law school, I, I've taught at Penn Law, and I've been teaching since 2003 at Fordham Law School, which I love. But writing to me is, I hope, helpful to younger lawyers in terms of understanding the political and legal issues of the day and those that people haven't thought about yet. So if, like, for example, right now I'm working on a, a, an article about impeachment in New York State because there's an inquiry relating to the governor. Full disclosure, I worked for him when he was attorney general. I was special counsel for public integrity. And so I'm coming, I'm coming to this not in a way that's partisan in any way, but uh, to explore the legal issues of the impeachment process in New York. After all, the last time we impeached the governor in New York State was in 1913. So it doesn't happen all the time. And lawyers don't necessarily know. Lawyers are busy with our practices, with our lives and so on. And so I write uh, about subjects that I think people would be interested in. And as I say, I'm focused on this because I think it's really interesting as to the, the legal issues involved in in impeachment of a governor in New York state. Every state has its own set of rules with regard to recalling a public official, impeaching a public official, as they have, every state has different rules about getting 
on the ballot and what their campaign finance laws are and so on. So I hope I'm adding to the dialogue by my writing. And one of the questions you asked was, well, how do you have time to do it? You, you, you make time. You just make time. You can always say to yourself, I'm so busy, I can't do it. Versus, I know I'm really busy, but I'm going to make time to do this because I enjoy it or it's important or whatever it might be. Gary, not, not including your books, are there any books or articles or, or publications that you think someone who's interested in the world of election law should read, maybe an aspiring election law attorney? Yeah, sure. There are a number of books. There's, there's a professor at University of California, Irvine. His name is Rick uh, Hazen, H-A-S-E-N, who's written any number of books about elections in the United States. The most recent one he did was called Election Meltdown, relating to the way we elect a president and what are the pitfalls of our procedures and so on. But he writes in a way that a non-election lawyer, a non-legal scholar can understand, which I think is really important because you want to be able to convey whatever it is you're thinking and writing about to an audience that's not necessarily steeped in all the legal issues that you are, but can understand it and take uh, take away from it in, in a way that's at least interesting. Even if you can't use it for your practice, it's at least interesting. Okay, well, that's it, right? Well, I, I, I had a couple more questions. I guess the first question is, this is, I'm, I'm a movie buff. I love political movies. I'm curious to hear what your favorite political movie is all time, or it could be a TV show, I guess, too, but that's kind of easier. So... Put me in front of a movie and I'm happy. I'm not very discriminating when I watch a movie. I usually love almost every movie that I see. I'm a snob. That's a good way to be. I don't know if it's a good way to be, but it's my way. And uh, I I thought the movie What About Bob was a great movie. (laughs) It is a great movie, but it's not a political movie. I guess it is a political movie in a way, but I guess everything's a political movie in a way. Was the, per, the the that's true. that's true? I was looking more for like American president or or something in that vein. But we'll, we'll leave it at what about? Well, how about the verdict? The verdict was a great movie. Why was the verdict a great movie? You had this down and out lawyer who was you know was really having a hard time in his professional life and his personal life, but he got a case that he knew in his bones was a great case. He knew it was a winner. And he had the entire world against him, including the judge, who he accused as being a bag man for the political establishment downtown, as he put it, the way I remember it. And nevertheless, the jury came back with a verdict because he had right and justice on his side. And you have to say to yourself, this is a guy who just put his all into it. And it was a it was a tough road. It was like Sisyphus. And yet he he persisted. And because it was the movies, he won. In real life, he may have won, he may not have won, but you gotta love the guy because he he did not flinch. He kept going. And the verdict was a good one for his client. And it gave you a real feeling of satisfaction. And what's better than that when you're a lawyer? doing that for whether your client is a candidate 
or just a regular business person or uh, involved in a landlord tenant or matrimony, whatever it might be. What's the best feeling when you do that for your client and you get them where they want to be? That's like the best feeling in the world. That was a great way of segueing our entire conversation to my totally irrelevant question. So good job with that. We really appreciate you coming on. We probably could sit here and talk to you about your stories for, for hours. So maybe yeah, we'll- every one of them was true. I know that you 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 have your own podcast for the for the dozens of people listening to this one. Do you want to pitch your own podcast? Yes, it's called Election Connection. And you can get it by going on to I'm not really sure. Spotify, iTunes, anything. I have no idea. It's probably an idea. Yeah, my podcast is Election Connection. It's uh, produced by WFUV, which is the public radio station here in uh, New York City associated with Fordham, Fordham University. So you can go on to WFUV News and see that, or you can go on Apple or Spotify and, and get that. Or you can send me your email and I will be delighted to put you on my email list and you'll get it whether you want it or not. Okay, so add us, because I haven't been getting it. That's true. Add us, for sure. Absolutely. So if nothing else, you get two more subscribers to your podcast. Today. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we... Okay, listen, good talking to both of you. It's good Great to see time. you. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. We'll do our wrap-up then. We appreciate you coming on. It's always great talking to you. And Same here. The, the coming election season, at least in New York City, is going to be very exciting. So I'm sure we'll probably do, ask you to do something with us in the future. And, um, you know, have a, have a great, great week and a great month. Thanks. You Thanks, too. Jerry. Thank sure. you, Cooper. Take care, Lee. Stay well.